0: Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, there are many, many blessed consequences and benefits that we obtain because of the glorious ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ into heaven. And in question answer 49, in the third part, we confess as the church, we confess the Scripture's teaching that one of the glorious benefits we have of Christ going away is that His Spirit came down To be with us. Now, if you have your Bible handy and you turn to John chapter 14, verse 16, you will be reminded that the Lord Jesus Christ promised this very thing to his disciples. John 14, verse 16, where the Lord Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's the promise. And Jesus actually told his disciples, it's good I'm going away, because if I didn't go away, I wouldn't, the Spirit wouldn't come. It's a glorious benefit of the ascension. And so when the Lord Jesus ascended in glory and victory to the right hand of God the Father... He received the right to pour out this promised Spirit. And if you have your Bible handy, turn to Acts chapter 2 this time, verse 33. Acts 2, verse 33, where Peter is preaching on Pentecost Sunday, and this is what he says about what's happening. Acts two thirty-three, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God... And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, that is the promise which is the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And so one of the things that Christ obtained for us by His death and His resurrection and His ascension, He obtained for us the promised Spirit. The Father gave him the right to pour out the Spirit onto the church, and ever since Pentecost Sunday, the Holy Spirit of the living God has been dwelling in his temple in the world, and that temple is the church. And wherever the church is found, wherever the word and the sacraments are, and the church is gathered, there is the very temple of God in the world. Now, This is a promise which God has kept and the sending of the Spirit is kind of a a seal that God keeps His promises. And so I'd like to invite you this time to turn to 2 Corinthians, the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 20 through to 22. And here the apostle writes the following, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, that is Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. When Christ poured out the Spirit that was the fulfillment of a promise, and it is also a seal and a guarantee to the believers. There's this wonderful exchange of promises and, and guarantees that is happening in the ascension and in the pouring out of the Spirit. In the ascension, in Christ, the church is lifted up into heaven, and there's a true human being in heaven. Not just any human being, but the head of the new human race, the the last Adam. and so the church is seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. that's the ascension. and then in Pentecost, heaven comes down to dwell in the church. The true God, by his spirit, dwells in his temple on earth and, and so. A human goes up and is in heaven, and the Spirit of God goes down and is in the church on earth. And so that's kind of like a, an exchange of, of, of rings, a, a bride and a groom exchange rings and, and seal a promise that we belong together, that we love each other, and that our wedding day is coming closer and we shall be together forever. This is the great exchange between heaven and earth, which seals that unity which will, at the last day, come to appear before our eyes, that heaven and earth will be together. And this is a great comfort. It is a great comfort for us as we grow old and as we, our bodies break down and we're attacked by trauma and disease. And we, we realize that life on this earth tends to break down because we are under the regime of the curse and death in this broken world. But yet, as Christians, we have a guarantee. And this is the guarantee, that what is mortal will be swallowed up in life. That this world, in all its brokenness, is not the end of the story, but that there is a heavenly glory waiting for us. That's the comfort for the believer of every age, that comfort has become clearer and clearer as the progress of Revelation has has progressed, as the history of redemption has progressed. But even in the Old Testament, Job knew about it. He knew about it vaguely, but he knew about it because it was Job that said, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And so he had that comfort of the things that are above, that marriage of heaven and earth, which we know so much more clearly today. And then there's one final verse that I'd like to invite you to turn to. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to read the first five verses here. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. There's that that guarantee again, that guarantee of heavenly glory, that guarantee of eternal life. It's not just something that God's put on a piece of paper and said, well, you've got to trust me on this. He has sent His Spirit. Who dwells in our midst, the power of the Spirit in the church, in our hearts, the Spirit of Almighty God, He lives in us. And that means that we have a double guarantee of glory, a double guarantee, which is reflected here in the Catechism. Because first of all, our head is in glory. And where the head goes, the body follows. I often use this example in my catechism classes. I say, well, if you've fallen through the ice, which hopefully you won't, but if you've fallen through the ice and you want to get out of the river, you, you don't stick your toe up. You don't stick your foot out. You, you don't even put your hand out. You, you try to get your head above water because if your head's above water, then the rest of your body can be saved as well. And that's what's happened to the church. Our head is out of this sinful, broken, corrupt world. Our head is in heaven, and so we shall follow. And then the other guarantee is that the Spirit is in us. And that means that the power of new heavenly life is transforming our souls and making us ready for heaven until finally the day comes when we will receive glorious bodies like the glorious body that Jesus himself already has, a glorious body that can't get tired, can't get hungry, can't get sick, cannot die, but will rise up with new strength like the eagle will run and not grow weary. That's the guarantee that we have because the Spirit of God lives in us. Just like the body of the Lord Jesus could not remain in the grave because he is the Lord of life, so we who have the Spirit of God cannot, even though we die, remain in the ground forever because we have the spirit the immortal spirit of god in us and so these are great and wonderful double guarantees of glory now this morning we heard we considered the world view of glory the gospel changes what we know the gospel changes the way we think and so we seek we set our minds on the things that are above, on the, the glory, the heavenly glory that is ours in Christ Jesus. And this afternoon, we focus on the rest of the book of Colossians, on how the, by the power of the Spirit of God, a radically transformed worldview or knowledge produces a radically transformed lifestyle or changes the way we live. And so we're going to look at Colossians chapter 3, we'll we'll be studying in verse 5. Put to death, therefore. And so Paul is making a connection here. I've told you who you are in Christ. You know who you are in Christ. You know what you are in Christ. And if you live your life with that glorious truth filling your field of view, if you set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, this is going to change both you and the way in which you live your life. And so, as Paul continues in chapter 3 here, verses 5 and following, he's basically saying this, I've told you who you are in Christ, now be who you are be who you are so the apostle is not encouraging us to try really hard to become better people that's not the point the point is is that we need to live in the power of what god has done for us in christ now if you have your bible handy look back at chapter 2 verse 11 and in chapter 2 verse 11 Uh, Paul is speaking about this remarkable New Testament circumcision. It is a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh, it is the circumcision of Christ. It is in another category altogether compared to the Old Testament ritual. You see, the Old Testament ritual was cutting off a, a little piece of dirty skin there would be blood, and the point, the picture was that sin must be washed away through the shedding of blood, and that sin must be cut off and cut away. But it was just a little piece of skin that was cut. New Testament circumcision, the circumcision of Christ, is far more radical surgery because the entire old man, the entire flesh, the body of the flesh, is cut away. Our whole old nature is crucified. It is killed. It is mortified. Now, our baptism is eloquent on this point. Our baptism, and every time we read the baptism form, we have the what is called the flood prayer in the baptism form where it's mentioned about Noah and the flood and, and Moses and the, the Red Sea and the point of Of those references, those scriptural references, is this, that that baptism pictures that process by which God uses water to separate the holy from the vile. I mean, you think of, of Noah. God used water to wash away the wickedness and the vileness of the earth. You think of Moses in the Red Sea. God used water to wash away every evil power that was trying to keep his people under its tyranny. They were washed away, their power was broken, and his people were free. And that is the picture that baptism gives us. That everything vile is washed away, it's gone. That everything that tries to oppress us and control us and hold us under its tyranny is destroyed and is no more. And when Paul says in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, he's saying this, don't keep souvenirs. Don't keep little remembrances of your old masters, but all the things which belong to the flesh, that body of flesh which is cut off, all the works of the flesh, they have to die. They have to be stamped out. They have to be mortified. They don't belong. They are not fitting. You cannot hold on to them. You cannot tolerate them in your life, not even a little bit. Get rid of them. And when I, when I see what Paul's writing here, I think of the SpaceX program I, I watched a few days ago, one of the, the launches, one of the recent launches of one of the big rockets, and, and you see this rocket on the launch pad, and, and it's, it's got these arms that are kind of holding it in place so it doesn't fall over, but at the time that, that the thing's going to launch into space with millions of pounds of, 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 of energy just lifting it up, then all those things fall away, all the things which hold it to this earth fall away. And Elon Musk would be a fool if he would have all these chains tied to the rocket and chained down to the ground because the thing wouldn't lift, would it? It would be a silly thing to do, to have all kinds of things chaining it down to the earth. The whole point is these things have to fall away, and the rocket just lifts up and goes into the heavens. And that's what basically Paul is saying here. Get rid of the things which are chaining you to the earth. It's foolish to allow these things to continue in your life. The old self has been put off, and the new self has been put on, being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And this is important. Being renewed in knowledge. Look there in verse 10. The new nature is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. being renewed in knowledge. You know, I, I saw the Twitter account of a famous health and wealth preacher yesterday, and he tweeted the following. He says, a, a good theological answer is, I don't know. And, and sometimes that's true. There are things that we don't know, and we should be humble. But the modern evangelical church celebrates doubt. Celebrates saying, I, I'm not really quite sure, but the important thing is to just love Jesus, but we don't really know much of anything at all. That is not what the Scripture teaches us. The Scripture teaches us that the new life that we have in Christ is being renewed In knowledge. It is what we know, and we dealt with that this morning, the first two chapters. It's what we know, what God has told us, what we are certain of, who Christ is, what He has done, the glory. We know it. It's true. It's so true that we we set our minds on it. We seek it, and we hold it before us. We know it, and because we know it, in that knowledge, we are renewed to be the image of, of Christ Himself. It's when you know the truth of who Christ is and you know what He has done for you, then in that knowledge you are being renewed. Now look at verse 10 and see the passive tense of the verb, you are being renewed. Sanctification is not something we do, it's not as though God justifies us and says, okay, your sins are forgiven. Now good luck you got to try and be like Jesus now. Work hard. That's not how it works. Justification is grace alone. Sanctification is grace alone. God makes us righteous by grace. God makes us holy by grace. We are being renewed. This is something that is happening. It's happening to us. Think of what Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He describes this from a different angle there. He says, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. That's our text from this morning. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's what we're confessing in the catechism here. He sends us His Spirit as a counterpledge by whose power. We seek the things that are above. It's the work of the Spirit. Now, now notice as Paul tells us to, to chop the lines that connect us to earthly things, notice what all these earthly passions have in common. They focus on the things of this world. They focus on the created things. And, 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 and the works of the flesh look to the things of creation for meaning and Satisfaction. That's what sexual immorality is. That's what impurity and and passion and evil desire and all the rest of them. And now look at that word covetousness in verse 5, which is idolatry. Isn't that interesting that the apostle calls our attention to the fact that covetousness is idolatry? He connects the tenth commandment to the first. Why does he do that? Well, you see, covetousness is I want. I need, I cannot live without, I must have at any cost. In other words, covetousness is saying, this is my God, of whom I say, whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. I want, and if I don't have, I cannot be happy. And you can fill in anything into that role of a pseudo God, the idolatry of covetousness. We can covet bad things, we can covet good things, but it's all idolatry. I want, and if I don't have, I am not happy, I am not fulfilled. I want my health, I want my drugs, I want my alcohol, I want my pornography, I want money. I want a nicer home. I want an easier life. And you can fill in all the wants that we raise to the level of a God. Now, if we seek the things that are below, and we set our minds on the things of this earth, and we look for a fulfilled life on this earth in the first place, if that's our main goal in life, And we walk in these earthly passions. And then when we don't get what we want, then there is that anger, the wrath, malice, slander, lying, deceit, and falsehood, all the toxic works of the flesh, which the apostle mentions here in chapter 3. These are all things that belong to a life which lowers its vision below the horizon, does not seek the things that are above, does not set its mind on the things that are above, but looks for meaning, significance, joy, satisfaction on this earth in the things of this life. And Paul says, look, that is not who you are in Christ. That is not the life and the attitude of the Christian. That is not the life of the one who knows the glorious truths of Colossians chapters 1 and 2 and Colossians 3 verse 1 to 4. Because the Christian, when it really comes down to it, I mean, we obviously don't like to suffer, do we? I mean, we wouldn't choose it on purpose if we had an option. But when it really comes down to it, the Christian whose mind is set on the things that are above, That believer says, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter what kind of a life God decides to give me, whether I'm rich or poor, whether I'm hungry or satisfied, whether I'm healthy or sick, whether I'm married or single, whether I have children or don't have children. It's not as though these things aren't important, but compared to the things that are above, Compared to the eternal glory that I have in Christ, when I look at him, everything else pales. And when I look at Christ and all his ascended glory, I don't care what kind of life God gives me, no matter how easy or no matter how hard, because I need Christ. I want Christ. And the single minded focus on Christ, brothers and sisters, is what binds us together and what unites us as members of the body to one another and together to Him. The apostle says, look, if that's our focus, if that's who we are, then there's no Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. What is he saying there in verse 11? Well, he's saying, look, when, when we were set on Christ and his glory, if that is our heart's desire, then it doesn't matter who we are or what we have or what our ethnicity is or what language we speak or if we were brought up in a reformed covenant home or if we're a new convert to the faith or if we're married or widowed or single or a single parent, it doesn't matter What? The the point is not, oh, I need to fit into this church and I need to be like other people. No, says the apostle, that's not the point. There is this glorious diversity and we all have our own lives and we all have our own struggles and our own joys. We all have our own situations. But what we have together, all of us, is that we want to be like Christ. Christ is all and in all. That is the fundamental principle which ties the entire congregation together. Are you struggling with the passions of the flesh? Are you struggling with love for the things of this world? Do you feel the the grasping claws of the things of this world grabbing at you, tugging at you, pulling you down, how do you deal with that? Well, the answer is not to try harder. The answer is not to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm committing this sin every day. Let's try and stretch it a little. Let's see if I can commit the sin every other day and then every third day and kind of wean myself off it. I mean, there are things that certainly can be helpful. If your sin has to do with screens and smash your screen with a hammer will probably help you, but that's not the main way to deal with sin. That's not the first place we go. The answer is to seek the things that are above. The answer is to tap into the power and the glory that is yours in Christ. The answer is to ask the Spirit of Christ, by His power, to help you seek the things that are above. To ask the Spirit of God not merely to diminish the frequency and the vileness of your sins, but to ask Him to take away the desire for sin in the first place. That's what sanctification is. Brothers and sisters, you know, we get it so wrong as church. We think that sanctification, growing in holiness, is doing sins less often. That is not sanctification. A Buddhist can do fewer sins. A Muslim can do fewer external sins. But sanctification is when the things of this world lose their grip on you. When the things of this earth simply hold no attraction for you. When you can look at that sin which used to, it used to tyrannize you, it used to dominate you, and now you look at it and you're not even interested. That is sanctification. And the way to find that freedom in sanctification is to ask the Spirit, to ask the Spirit to transform you to be like Christ, so that His desires are yours, so that His priorities are yours, so that what Christ rejoices in, you rejoice in, so that you, like Him, would be those words which the Apostle speaks of in verses 12 and following, so that you would be Like him, holy, beloved, compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, forbearing, forgiving, and filled with divine love. That you would know his peace. That's the answer to our search for sanctification. That's the answer to our desire to mortify the flesh. It can only be done by and in the power of the Spirit of God. Now, how does the Spirit answer those prayers? If we say, Holy Spirit, make me more like Jesus, how does he answer them? Well, the Spirit always works with the Word. Spirit and Word always come together. You go into some church in some place in the world and they're saying, oh, the Spirit's here, and they're climbing the walls and swinging from the chandeliers, and the Bible is kept closed. That's not the Spirit of God. Where the Spirit is, the Word is opened, and the Word is preached, and the Word works with power. And so if we want to be like Jesus, And if we want to grow in sanctification, and if we're asking the Spirit to do that, then we need to be in the Word. And that means daily study of the Bible. And it especially means being attending to the means of grace and public worship, the preaching of the Word. The Spirit has you in His workshop in public worship, and He is working on you with power to change you, to make you seek the things that are above, to make you look and think and act more and more like Christ. And that means that if you stay away from public worship without lawful reason, you despise the proclamation of the word and the sanctity of the sacraments, and your lusts, and your worldly concerns are more important than Christ, then what you're saying when you remove yourself from the public assembly of God's people, you remove yourself from the means of grace, you remove yourself from the preaching of the word, what you're saying is, Jesus, Spirit of Jesus, get lost. Go away. Do not work in me with your power. Do not make me more like Christ. I have more important things to do. That's not what the believer says. And that's not what the believer does. The believer seeks the things that are above. And the Spirit of God works with the power of the Word to change who we are. The Word of God dwells in us richly so that we are different. We think different. We act different. We choose different. People who come into contact with us will see that it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And they will feel that they have come into the presence of God. Because they have. Because wherever you are in the world, child of God, you are a temple of the Spirit of the living God. And when people talk to you, and when people have interaction with you, they are in the presence of God. Because whatever we do, In word or in deed, we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. All of life is liturgy. All of life is worship. We are living sacrifices. And every thought, every word, every act is a deliberate act of worship in the Christian life. What does that look like? Well, you can see that as we continue through the chapter And it reminds us of what we saw last year in in Ephesians, right? In the power of the Spirit, the Word of God transforms the basic categories of human life, marriage, children, labor. He transforms the relationships. He heals the brokenness. He restores each one to their God-ordained place in human society for maximum flourishing. And in our homes, our relationships, and in our daily work, in the ordinary things of human life and human existence and human society, we already now begin to taste and to live the glory of the world to come. He makes our homes and our churches into pictures of the new creation. He makes us, this is the Spirit of God whose power is at work, He makes us a people of prayer a people longing for the coming of Christ, a people who longs for and prays for the advance of the gospel, a people who makes the most of every opportunity to call others to Christ, to call others to know and to seek the things that are above. He gives us the courage and the wisdom and the love To be bold in calling other sinners, turn from your sin. Shun the paths of evil. There are a million ways to die, but there is only one way to live. Know the Lord. Seek the things that are above. Then, as we're about to sing, then you will have as a home through time unending, the pleasant land that God for you has won. Amen.